Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. So we're going to be in Ephesians 4 uh, this morning, verses 1 through 6. And this really marks the transition in the book of Ephesians uh, from the, this first section that we'd been looking at over uh, the last couple of months, that first section of Ephesians was dealing very much with the, the doctrine of God, who God is, what God has done, who Jesus Christ is. And now we get into more of the, the applied theology of the book of, of Ephesians. So we're going to be looking at what does the Christian life look like on the basis of who God is and what God has done in this world. So we're going to be looking this morning at the marks of the Christian life. Now, until uh, the time of the Reformation, Western Christians nearly unanimously regarded the Bishop of Rome to be the head of the church. If you go back into, um, into church history... You look at those first few centuries after uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we had these small churches all over the, the place, uh, usually in, in larger cities. And as those house churches grew, the pastor or lead elder of those churches would take on more responsibility and be responsible for the, the other house churches in that region and even out into the countryside. And so this is where the idea of bishops came from. And so we had the, the Bishop of Rome, who was the representative of Christ on earth, the supreme authority on matters of, of doctrine and, and religious practice, as it was, as it was thought. Um, this Bishop of Rome eventually became known as the Pope. Okay, and the Pope was, was thought to be a leader of the highest quality, a man of God, a saint, whose place in heaven was essentially secured by virtue of his Christian excellence. People regarded the Pope as that kind of guy, that kind of super Christian. He was the most powerful man in the world. His, his wealth spoke for itself. Surely God must bless a, a man of that quality with great wealth. He had the authority to excommunicate kings, to excommunicate entire nations, really. His direct communication with God was thought to give him a privileged status beyond doubt. Surely men of such status, men of such excellence, must be true servants of God, filled with humility, filled with the fruit of the Spirit. But history tells a different story, especially if you go back to the Middle Ages. I'm going to pick on one of the popes here for just a moment, Pope Julius II. Pope Julius II took the name of Julius Caesar because he so admired that original conqueror of, of Rome, that military man. Uh, Pope Julius was known to have led the troops of Rome in several campaigns against uh, dissenting nations. He was a man of war. In fact, he liked the bloodshed so much, he would dress up in his armor sometimes at night and ride out into the streets of Rome from the Vatican and slay vagrants in the streets for fun. He enjoyed that sort of thing. Now, for a man who had taken a vow of celibacy, he lived a life of licentiousness. He was quite active in the arts of the flesh. He was known to have fathered at least three daughters with various women and had countless mistresses. Um, nobody even knows how many children um, he ended up fathering. In fact, some people joke that many of the people in Rome at the time had some popish uh, blood in their, in their gene pool. 
And that was the kind of guy he was. And because of his, his illicit and adulterous affairs, his body ended up being riddled with syphilis by the time he died. And Julius is not even the worst of the popes. I just wanted to keep it R-rated instead of uh, X-rated here this morning uh, for you. Medieval popes were well known for their fondness for homicides, palace intrigues, fornication, seductions, and drunken debauches. Okay, that's how many of these men lived, especially during the Middle Ages. They were power-hungry. They were arrogant, incorrigible men who failed miserably to shepherd God's people. Now, it's easy to pick on the popes at that time in history because they're centuries removed, a continent removed from us. But we need to bear in mind here that even in the modern 21st century evangelical church, these kinds of problems can arise. Every Christian, whether you're in a position of power or simply a, a member of God's people, of his church, we have to be on guard against these kinds of behaviors. We want to live a life worthy of Christ. And see, left unchecked, left unaccountable, we can all be led into the same kind of delusions, right? And this is why in, in Ephesians chapter 4, after having told Ephesian Christians what they must believe, the Apostle Paul pleads with them to live a life that is consistent with those beliefs. So the Christian life is not just about what we believe, it's how we live out those beliefs. And so Paul opens uh, the second section of Ephesians by saying, as a prisoner of Christ, as a prisoner for the Lord... I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, worthy of the calling you have received. And thus he examines two areas in particular, the, the, the Christian character and the Christian uh, unity. Okay, so we're going to look at those two things this morning. Uh, let's go to Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we ask now that as we delve into the, the riches of your word this morning, that you would guide our hearts, guide our minds as we reflect on this word, as we ponder this truth. Lord, open our eyes, open our minds, help us to receive from your Holy Spirit this morning. Lord, would you transform us by the power of this word? In Jesus' name, amen. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 answers the question, how then should a follower of Jesus Christ live? How does the gospel transform how we live now, there is a logical entailment here between what we believe about God and what we do as believers in God. And this was common in Hebrew thought at the time. The Hebrew people believed that you didn't really know something unless it was something you lived or could live. You could build kind of a knowledge-action principle around this. 
The idea is that if you believe something, you will live it. If you live it, it should point back to what you, you believe, right? These two things, these two realities merge together, come together. Now, Paul's assumption in the book of Ephesians is that people who know God rightly are going to know themselves rightly. People who know God rightly will know the world rightly. People who know God rightly know how to live rightly in the world. Again, you've got to go back to the source. You have to start with who God is and what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. See, we have been justified We read that passage this morning in Romans 5. We've been justified. That is, we have been declared righteous in the sight of God because of what Jesus did for us on the cross through his shed blood. He has imputed his righteousness to us and he has taken our sin on himself. The wrath of God poured out against the sin of the world on the cross. And that doctrine of justification has been under attack, honestly, in the church, in the evangelical church in modern times, but we have to go back to that doctrine that's so important to our faith. It is by grace we have been saved through faith. That is the essential of the Christian faith. Okay, and I get up here, I know I I rant and rave and stomp and vituperate about these things, but this is the heart of Scripture, the cross of Jesus Christ. We have to come back to this again and again, and I can promise you that there is no doctrine, no philosophy, no ideology that will ever come close to answering life's most fundamental questions. We have to go back again and again to the gospel. God forbid that we should exchange that truth for a lie. And I don't mean to take the Lord's name in vain. I most seriously mean, would God in his mercy forbid that any one of us should ever abandon that gospel that we first received. On the basis of this gospel, we are called to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. And that manifests itself in two ways in the Christian life, okay? Christian character and unity in the church. And that's what we see here in Ephesians chapter four. So to know Christ is to be conformed to Christ. Here we're talking about Christian character, okay? Remember that we are just now entering into this section of Ephesians that deals with the practical theology, the praxis, okay, the action. Look again at verse two. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So the Christian life is characterized by humility, right? By gentleness, by patience, by loving forbearance. Now understand that these qualities are rooted in the actual character of Jesus Christ. Again, we gotta go back to the source. We learn from Jesus himself. Observe how Jesus exhibits the qualities of humility, gentleness, and love. I think one of the best passages in scripture to really get a sense of this is in Matthew chapter 11, the very end of the chapter, where Jesus really just opens up and shares his heart, his mind with the disciples. He says, come to me, all who labor. Come to me, those who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Think about those words. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
See, Jesus removes our burden of sin and striving. He tenderly offers us his grace. Jesus humbled himself and took on the nature of a servant for the purpose of exalting us to glory. That is the heart of Jesus Christ. And even in the Old Testament, we learn something of this Messiah. There are passages in the Old Testament that speak of the tenderness, the gentleness of this Messiah who would come into the world. If you go to Isaiah chapter 53, we we get an example of this as well, where Isaiah speaks of this humble, gentle Savior. He had no physical charm or anything that would draw us to him. He came in a lowly position. He bore our sin and our grief. He was a man of grief, a man of sorrow. He came not in violence, he he didn't come in deceit, but in obedience to the point of death, and as we read in Philippians chapter 2, even death on a cross. So Ephesians 4 is telling us what we should do as Christians, and interestingly, Paul urges us to begin by developing our character. Notice that in the text, the very first instruction he gives us on how to live the Christian life, it's about character, not competence. Character over competence. He urges obedience over excellence. He urges us to begin by developing our heart, not our talents. We're called to develop, really, the heart of Christ. Now think about the Ephesian church in the first century. Let's go back again to the first century when Paul had brought this gospel initially to the Ephesians and the church was starting to grow. Now, think about what the Christian church had to compete with at that time. The Greek and Roman cults of Ephesus were all about who had the grandest temple, who had the best temple prostitutes, right? Who had musicians who were the most talented, orators who were the most persuasive, furnishings that were the most lavish. The church couldn't compete with those things. The Christian church in Ephesus didn't need to compete with those things. They had something better. They had the gospel, the life-transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. And what they offered the world was a, a true transformation. If you study those early centuries of the church, it's, it's amazing how the church transformed the Roman world, not through violence, not through conquest, through the gospel through people living a life worthy of the call they had received. Christian practice begins with character, right? Character over competence. Now, I know some of you, many of you, have listened to that uh, popular podcast uh, that had come out this last year on the rise and fall of Mars Hill Church. Are you familiar with that? Mars Hill Church was one of the biggest churches in the country, had a tremendous influence in the Seattle area. It was a multi-campus megachurch run by Mark Driscoll. It reached thousands of people every week. The church had all the outward appearance of God's anointing. Driscoll was an amazing communicator, very effective and very biblical. The worship was stellar, the church was growing, the leadership were all very well connected. And then the whole thing dissolved almost overnight. It just crumbled to the ground. There's nothing left of that church. Because a culture of bullying and narcissism had developed among the top leadership 
in that church, and, and it ended up tearing down so many staff members and so many volunteer leaders that the empire Driscoll had created collapsed under its own weight. Sunday morning competence and influence had been emphasized to the detriment of developing godly character rooted in love, rooted in humility, rooted in the things that God has called us to. And this isn't just leaders that face these problems. I need to be clear, every single Christian is tempted at times to follow the ways of the world, right? We, we, we talked about that in, in Ephesians chapter two, the world, the flesh, the devil, these things are vying for position and power in our lives. We need to resist these things. What does God truly desire for his church? Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Woe to the church whose members are not transformed by the gospel, who do not walk in the fruit of the Spirit. Woe to the church whose members and whose leaders are not transformed by the gospel, who do not walk in kindness, gentleness, love, and humility. Woe to the church who does not have its priorities straight. Right? Character over competence. So God just doesn't care about what we do. He cares about how we do it. Understand that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, has opinions about how we should live as children of God and as citizens of his kingdom. So Paul calls us to Christian character first, as we see in verse 2, but then he goes on to Christian unity in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And I spoke briefly about this a, a, a couple weeks ago when we were in uh, the end of chapter 2, where it talks about this reconciliation that takes place between God and man through the shed blood of Christ. Reconciliation that takes place between man and man through the shed blood of, of Christ. Remember that unity, the unity to which Paul refers here, only makes sense when it's rooted in the unity that is brought on naturally through our reconciliation with God. Do you remember that image I talked about with the pyramid, with Christians around the bottom? If you want to get closer to each other, you've got to work your way up and get closer to God, right? You've got to go back to the source. You want unity in the church? Get to know God, right? That's how it works, Paul says, keep the unity or maintain the unity. Understand, unity is not something the church just goes out and fabricates. You're not just going to get unity by talking about unity and trying to create unity somehow. Unity is rooted in God and in his grace. Those who are bound to Christ in faith are bound together in the same way that aspen trees share a common root system. I was reading about this uh, recently, it's fascinating. This is one of the largest organisms on earth. You find a cluster or grove of these aspen trees, they're all belonging really to the same root system. That's kind of what it should look like in the church, rooted in the gospel, right? Rooted in Christ. So we have some clues here in the text as to the importance of unity. If you look at verses four through six, this is quite critical actually. The basis for our unity is God. The basis for our unity, this is, it's the elements of redemption, really. 
The oneness of the triune God and the singularity of his redemptive plan serve as an illustration for the unity expected in the church. And actually, Paul uses the word one seven times in those verses. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. That word is repeated for a reason to point us back to the oneness that should exist in the church. Now, unity doesn't mean mindless conformity. It doesn't mean passivity, okay? God gives us his word and his Holy Spirit to help us determine what are the matters of central importance, the matters worth our time, our concern. God also guides his people in determining the spirit in which we should question or confront or, or, or correct things in the church, it's like triage that you have to do. Imagine a triage nurse in the emergency room. Some of you may have worked in that sort of position or, or have been in a situation where you were in the emergency room and some work has to be done. What are the things of most importance? What are the injuries or illnesses that really need immediate care? What are the things that can be uh, kind of put off for, for, for now? Right, a hangnail is not the same weight or gravity as a gunshot wound to the head or that sort of thing. A little triage is necessary. And similarly, the church needs to do triage in areas of church polity, theological belief, all of these things to determine what are the issues of primary importance as related in Scripture, revealed through the Holy Spirit, and what are those things of secondary or maybe tertiary importance, the things of, of preference. See, what's important in Ephesians 4 is that unity is a gift of God's grace given to us as a natural byproduct, kind of like a natural consequence of our union with Christ that is so critical to understand in this text. Okay, Paul is building a theology here. You've got to understand what he's doing in chapter 2 if you're going to understand what he's doing in chapter 4. And Paul says, when he says, maintain or keep the unity of the Spirit, really he's telling us to be stewards of that unity God has given us. To be guardians of what God has given us by his grace. Now we go wrong with unity when we replace authentic Spirit-led unity with the artifice of human efforts. Again, you don't go out and fabricate unity. It's something rooted in God. And I think the biggest deterrent to true unity in the church is the false unity that originates in misguided human attempts to create unity. So let me point you to five ways, briefly, five ways we can go wrong and undermine the unity that Paul is talking about in verse three. And the first thing we see here and that I wanna to point to is, is this. Beware of the kind of false unity rooted in the avoidance of controversy. Okay, avoiding controversial issues in the church may prevent disagreement on the surface, but it ultimately leaves the church ill-equipped to respond to the world. If we study and teach the entire counsel of God's wisdom in Scripture, then Scripture will eventually and inevitably deal with the, the, the bad ideas that are so rampant in the world. See, avoiding current issues in things like gender, gender studies, sexual ethics, social movements, church trends, this won't make those issues go away. Avoiding controversial issues does not make them go away. 
We're called to outthink the world for Jesus. Right? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. Right? Outthink the world for Jesus. Be prepared to respond to these controversial issues as they come up. Now, secondly, and closely related to the previous point, is beware of the kind of false unity rooted in conflict avoidance. Conflict is not the opposite of unity, okay? I think we tend to think that way, but conflict is not the opposite of unity. Unhealthy practices need to be identified and confronted in truth and in love. You'll see that later in Ephesians 4. Speak to one another with truth and love. See, when discord rears its head in the church, I have far too often heard people say, oh, we just need unity. We just need to get along. We need to just love each other. Imagine what would have happened had we said those things to Jesus in his confrontation of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, for example, the sevenfold dominical anathema that he pronounces against the Pharisees. Woe to you. Right? Remember what he says? Whitewashed tombs, brood of vipers, children of the devil. This was strong language that Jesus had used against the Pharisees. And we could say, well, these were good men. They were the shepherds of Israel. Right? They went to seminary and studied and memorized scripture. They smiled and greeted people in the synagogues and kissed babies and did all the stuff that church leaders should do. What, what's wrong with you, Jesus? Just have some unity. Just get along with the Pharisees, right? We could have said the same thing about Jesus as he drove the merchants and, and money changers out of the temple as they prevented the Gentiles from coming in and worshiping God. They took up that precious space in the temple. And again, we could have said, well, Jesus, come on, just have some, some unity, right? Sometimes conflict is necessary in restoring and maintaining biblical unity in Christ. Sometimes wolves slip in to the church. Sometimes pigs need to be identified and corrected. Sometimes wounded sheep bite and they need a little extra care, right? Maintaining unity requires the church All of us, we all have responsibility in this, to feed the sheep, to reform the pigs, and to shoot the wolves, right? Third point, beware of the kind of false unity rooted in superficial agreement. Okay, superficial relationships breed superficial unity. Superficial knowledge of the word breeds superficial unity. Superficial accountability breeds sin, right? Superficial unity, discord. Think of it this way. When you purchase a used car, and this probably applies to new cars as well, but when you purchase a used car, you don't just look at the exterior. You don't just look at the paint job to ensure that it, it's, everything looks good on the outside. You've got to dig a little bit, right? You take it for a test drive. You check the tires and the struts and the, uh, you listen for weird things with the bearings and the wheels. You listen for the engine. You check and see if it's, it's been maintained, if it's been serviced regularly. You, you do your research before you pay that money for that car. 
You don't just look at the surface. See, going below the surface is a risk. I'm gonna tell you that right now, it's a risk. But if we're willing to go there in Christ-centered relationships, to discuss hard things, to wrestle together with difficult passages of scripture, we will be rewarded with the kind of unity Paul is calling the church to in verse three. The fourth thing, beware of the kind of false unity rooted in fear of gospel offense. The gospel is an offense, okay? We're told that in scripture. 1 Corinthians 1, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. The gospel is an offense. It offends our pride. It offends our idolatrous inclinations. It offends us with the truth. And if we don't teach it and live it, we fail to live a life worthy of the calling to which we've been called in Christ. See, our call is to know God, to love Jesus Christ, to boldly proclaim the forgiveness of sins by the grace of God. We're not called to try to make the gospel more attractive. We're called to preach the gospel. We're not called to make the gospel more relevant. Jesus is already relevant. Salvation is relevant. See, the work of the leadership of the church is not to fill the pews and fill the coffers. It's to guide people to Christ. John chapter six, Jesus had just multiplied bread and fish. He'd fed the 5,000 and the people began to follow Jesus. They followed him all over. They thought, this is, this is Moses come back to us. This is a prophet in the tradition of Moses. He's going to bring manna from heaven. He's going to feed the people. They were excited about the bread. And what did Jesus do? He started to teach. You want bread? I'll give you some bread. I am the bread of life, he said. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life. That was hard teaching for the people. They just wanted food. Jesus said, you need to come to me in repentance. And the people left, right? One by one, they walked away. The crowds left. And Jesus turned to his disciples. Are you going to leave as well? What was their response? Well, where else would we go? You have the words of life. See, the gospel is an offense. The fifth and final thing, beware of the kind of false unity rooted in tolerance of disobedience, tolerance of sin. See, putting up with sin and unbiblical ideas, unbiblical lifestyles, unbiblical teaching, this stuff is dangerous to the church. Better to have those conversations and confrontations than to let the church be torn down. I read an interesting tidbit from history this week. I can't verify if it's entirely true or not, but it's a tradition in the church. I'll share it with you. During the Arian controversy in the first centuries of the Christian faith, a bishop named Arius had been teaching that Jesus was not the eternal son of God. So the Arian heresy basically denies the divinity of Jesus. Arius probably would have benefited from spending a little bit more time in uh, Colossians chapter one, verses 15 through 23, which talks about the dual nature of Jesus. But Arius had denied the divinity of Jesus Christ and he was teaching people to do the same. So during the, um, the Council of, of uh, Nicaea, this uh, discussion was going on, and another bishop finally had enough of Arius' heresy, 
and he went up to him and slapped him across the side of the head, okay? Now, that man was a bishop named Nicholas of Myra, a.k.a. St. Nicholas, a.k.a. Father Christmas, right? A.k.a. Kris Kringle, a.k.a. Santa Claus, all right? The original Santa Claus. He sees you when you're sleeping. <laughs> he knows when you're awake. He knows when you've denied the divinity of Jesus, and he'll punch you in the head, okay? Now, I'm not suggesting, I'm not condoning that kind of behavior in the church. That's not the point of this story. The point simply, it, what it illustrates is that Nicholas would not put up with that sin, with that heresy in the church. He had to do something about it. Okay, we are called in love, right? Not to smack people, in love to speak the truth. Now, true unity is born in right relationship to God that really generates right relationship with others. This idea of get along at all cost, that's a demonic lie, I'll just tell you that right now. It's a demonic lie. Growth in character, growth in unity in the church happens when we allow the majesty and the glory of God to become our focus to transform us. When we learn to think about ourselves less and to think about God more, okay? The marks of the Christian life are seen as we get closer to God, as we become students of his glory, students of his salvation, students of his character. And here's what I would encourage you to do this week. I'd ask you, go back, spend some time this week, go back to Ephesians chapters one through three and spend some time in that text again. Go back and reread it. And ask yourself as you're reading the passage, ask yourself, what does this teach me about God? What do I learn here about the character and the activity of God? Who is God? And on the basis of that, Ask yourself, how does God's character, how does God's activity, how does God's nature change who I am as I'm drawn to him? See, the marks of the Christian life are available to those who learn to delight in Jesus Christ and to stay rooted in his gospel. Now, one way unity is expressed is through our common commitment to Christ in communion. And we're going to take some time now to celebrate communion together. If you don't have the communion elements yet, there are some, uh, there's a table here in the back and then uh, some elements here in the front as well. So please grab those. And we're going to celebrate what Christ has done. Remember what Christ has done for us as we take communion together. Now understand, communion, this is not just a snack, okay? This is not just something we eat to hold us over until lunch, Okay? There is power in this. Intellectually, think about this, intellectually, communion points us to the objective truth of Jesus Christ. It feeds our mind, okay? Volitionally, communion allows us to reaffirm our faith, to say yes to Jesus, to choose him. Emotionally, communion is an opportunity to express love for our, our Lord, our Savior. Relationally, communion helps us Build each other up. When you take communion, you are encouraging your brothers and sisters in Christ in the faith. And above all, communion strengthens us with the grace of God. 
It nourishes us and sustains us. So let's take the, the communion elements together. Jesus began with the bread. The night he was betrayed, he led his disciples in this, in this ordinance of the church. And he said, this bread, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup, this wine is the blood of the covenant. Drink this in remembrance of me. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Once more, we come before you to thank you that your Holy Spirit has revealed this truth to us. And sometimes these truths are hard. Lord, we recognize that there are things in our hearts that we need to change. We recognize that we need to repent of sin in our own lives, to hold one another accountable, to seek to maintain the unity that you have already given us through your grace, to grow and develop in Christian character as we walk with Christ. Lord, help us to stay rooted in the truth of the gospel. Would you transform each one of us, continue to sanctify us, to make us holy through the transformation of the gospel. And Lord, help us to be a light in this community. In Jesus' name, amen.